GP Insights, a health cert podcast. Practical advice for busy GPs on how to treat with confidence and grow their practice. So, um, hello everybody and uh, welcome to our latest podcast. Um, I'm really pleased to be here today with Professor Michael Henderson. We're going to talk about um, what's going on in his world around uh, skin cancer and particularly melanoma. So, uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Why don't we start as people normally should when they meet each other? Tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would. Introduce yourself and uh, a little bit about you, your background and, and who you are and so on. Thank you. Uh, David, thank you very much. Nice to meet you and uh, the rest of your colleagues out there. Uh, this is the first podcast I've ever done. <laughs> so <laughs> there we go. Um, it'll be fair to say that I'm a senior surgeon, not because of uh, I'm, uh, I claim any um, precedence, but because I happen to have a lot more grey hair than most of my colleagues. <laughs> um, what I will say is my, uh, my training was in uh, general surgery at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne, and, and I decided early on that I was interested in cancer as a discipline. Right. And I was very lucky in that uh, I fluked it. I ended up getting a uh, two and a half year fellowship at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Oh, wow. Which was uh, an unbelievable place to be. And, yeah. and it was unbelievable in a whole lot of ways. The first was that, uh, you know, we've got to remember that Australia in the mid 80s was um, was that was a great place to be but yeah. as a young surgical trainee to go to a place like the MD Anderson which even then was one of the world's leading cancer centers yeah um it, it just it just blew me away the 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 uh the, the extent of the research that was going on yeah um, and it, as in most of the really good North American academic medical centers the standard of care is outstanding yeah the teaching the discipline it, yeah. it was just great yeah. I, I, I tell people the story that, um, that uh, you know, if you won the Nobel Prize, there was a fair chance you'd be in Houston within six months. Uh, yeah. And there'd be 2,000 people, or well, certainly not 2,000, but certainly a, many hundreds uh, turn up um, from all the disciplines. There. Yeah. there was, uh, it was yeah. a great place to be there. And the second thing that happened is that the day I walked into the MD Anderson, the head of surgery... Um, uh, who's really recently appointed, started work. And he was a man by the name of Charles Bolch. Now, oh, yeah. those of you who know anything about melanoma will know that Charles Bolch is the grandfather of melanoma. Yeah. And um, he, he had a, he, he was, uh, he really set the surgery for melanoma on its, uh, on its way. And fortunately, he got his start by coming to Sydney and working um, with Jerry Milton. Right. Um, and, and he, that's where he actually got all the data that then allowed him to basically set up where we stood for many, many years with melanoma. And yeah. Because he'd worked in Australia, he was suitably impressed with me and <laughs> because, I, because I had the right genes and that was about it. And I, I, I've always, um, I, I was basically doing a lot of general surgical oncology, but melanoma has always been my, one of my great loves. And certainly at this stage of my career, it's about all I do is, uh, is work in melanoma. And, and Michael, were, were you interested in melanoma before you went to the MD Anderson or was that what kicked it off? No, it, it really wasn't actually. Um, right. It, it was really working with someone like Charles Bolch um, and melanoma started to become in, it, people started to get interested in it yeah. certainly in the late 80s and 90s. Uh, yeah. it, 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 there was 
the trials starting about lymphadenectomy and then then right. John Morton started the business with sentinel node biopsy. And then that yeah. just started taking off. And that's that's basically why I suppose I became more and more interested in it as time went by. Fantastic. So so that's virtually all your clinical work now, is it? Essentially, I'm I'm essentially I'm doing nothing but melanoma, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about about what you see and, and what you do in your clinical work in your kind of setting? I think it would be really interesting to our audience. Yeah, well, look, the um, I, I, I'm, I'm not uh, boasting, but I suppose I'm very proud of the fact that our unit's one of the two or three biggest in the country. Um, yeah. we, we, we will see something like 800 new melanoma patients a year, as well as a couple of, you know, actually close to 5,000 skin cancers a year. Um, and the, 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 it's not the, it's the patients that are great, but it's also my colleagues I work with. Um, our, our sort of spectrum of work is um, the more complicated stuff. So yes, we do early stage melanoma, but that's not our primary focus. Our primary focus is more, the more advanced for the, as far as the surgeon, surgeon, surgeons are concerned, yeah. and certainly for the medical oncologist and radiation oncologist. And I think that reflects the fact that um, we have a very strong medical oncology unit, Grant MacArthur and his team. And yeah. Grant, Grant for, interested, for instance, was one of, the, uh, one of the seminal medical oncologists around the world who started the targeted therapy and immunotherapy re revolution, just sure. like um, Georgina Long and her colleagues, colleagues were in Sydney. Yeah. We are blessed in this country with some really first-class people we working in, in melanoma. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell us a little bit, if you would, about um, how you have seen the treatment of melanoma change in the last few years. I mean, it's been incredible to be part of this journey. G give us your perspectives on it, if you would, Michael. Look, I, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question. And, and I, I'm going I'm to start by telling you that I, I saw a, a patient this morning yeah. who was referred along with a rather nasty melanoma, but when he, for reasons related to a whole lot of stuff, he was delayed his referral uh, or his presentation by two or three months. Yeah. And he's clearly now got metastatic disease. Yeah. And young man, young family, yeah. there with his wife, and that the, and they walked out of there knowing today that he is in he is a very serious situation. Yeah. But I could, and I, these are the words I used. I said, listen, I've spent my career, the last 30 years looking after patients with melanoma. Yeah. And until the last five, 10 years, yeah. we used to see young people with advanced melanoma knowing that apart from operating, we virtually had nothing to offer them. Yeah. And, and we were the pariahs of, of oncology, the medical, yeah. the melanoma yeah. team. Yeah. And then suddenly this revolution with the targeted therapies and then immunotherapy, which is now just swept through oncology. Yeah. And it, it's, it has just been absolutely sensational from an intellectual point of view to be part of the wave. You know, we were the, one of the first places in the country along with the MIA in Sydney yeah. to have access to these new agents because of grant, people like Grant MacArthur and colleagues sure. um, and because of our international connections. And, and to, be, to be part of that wave of the introduction of these new therapies, it, it was just so exciting and it still is in, in, exciting. Yeah. It, it just brings a whole new reason for getting up in the morning. You know, like yeah. I, that sounds really corny, <laughs> but it's not. You know, when you see someone that 
five, 10 years ago, you knew was going to be dead by Christmas. And yeah. you could say to them, there's a really good chance we're going to cure you. Because yeah. the most recent data suggests that probably close to 80% of people who get combination immunotherapy are probably going to be alive at five years. Now, yeah. can you imagine thinking back 10, 20, 30 years ago, any cancer that had metastatic, where there was extensive metastatic disease, the chances that 5%, much less 10 or 20 or 30% are going to still be alive. And it's just been extraordinary. Well, you, you, you would have been, you know, told that you were, you were mad to, to have suggested that. I mean, as, as you know, I'm a, I'm a GP and a public health specialist. And when I start, I started doing skin cancer when I went up to Queensland, um, which is incredibly, oh, it's 15 to 16, 17 years ago. And, and then, you know, there was no advanced treatment. I mean, as, as GPs, <clears throat> basically, you know, if we could do the surgery, we did the surgery. And the melanoma units were rarely interested in a referral because they said, well, David, we know you can do the excision and the repair, get on with it. Or if they were advanced, they would say, well, we know you're a GP, you do the palliative care. It's completely different now. What what did you say to this young man this morning? What how has his prognosis changed? Can you give us a flavour of that? Well, as I said to you, it, it, we know that that the figures now are somewhere in, in excess of seventy percent of patients successfully treated with combination immunotherapy yeah. um, are, got, are going to have a five year survival that's approaching. That's 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 of that order, seventy plus percent. Yeah. Um, you know that the you know that and as I also then immediately say to them, look, this is not straightforward treatment. There's sure. significant toxicities involved. Yeah. But you know, can we give you a chance that you're going to live to see your four young children grow up? Because he has got four young kids. Yeah. The answer is yes. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it, it provides a sense of uh, okay that that there is a future for them. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, you talk to any bloke with a, with a young family or a woman sure. with a young family and tell them, this is what it's going to take. This is your best chance. Sure. They'll walk on hot coals for you. What, what um, absolutely, what, 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 what key message or messages would you want to send to um, mainstream GPs and GPs in skin cancer clinics around Australia in terms of um, them managing patients with a diagnosis of melanoma once they make a diagnosis you know when do you guys want them or, or when when should they be sending them on to to the tertiary centers to the melanoma units what what stage of that do you want them because I mean there's a huge spectrum and I, I can say this because I'm a GP and I've taught literally through my short courses now thousands of GPs one end of the spectrum is um, you know, young colleagues, often overseas trained, who have no experience, they don't know what they're looking at, all the way through to highly experienced, outstanding diagnosticians. So the messaging has to be has to be targeted. What messaging would, would you want to send on behalf of, you know, your colleagues in the tertiary centres? That, that's a really complicated question, and, yeah. and it really has got a couple of sub questions so yeah. so look we know that about 70 percent of melanoma is going to be what we call t1 or less yeah. that is in situ melanoma or yeah. melanoma less than a millimeter in thickness yeah. and yeah. the vast majority of those patients are, are are going to be essentially cured by doing a wide excision yeah. which most 
which in many cases the primary care practitioner can handle. Yeah. And one of our one of the thing, one of my pet hobbies and one of the things that I've taken on in more recent years is that is that we I try and with the uh, nursing staff is try and triage the patients. Yeah. And we have a number of patients that come down from the country. Right. And, and to be able to ring the general practitioner who's referred in a patient with a melanoma and say, look, you've done a good job so far. Yeah. What you need to do is a little bit more of a wide excision. Yeah. Are you happy to do it? And nine times out of 10, first of all, they're delighted to have a call. Second, yeah. to be told what they're doing is fine, it's great. And yeah. then to be advised that, you know, that they're, 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 what they're acting in a wholly, wholly competent manner yeah. is, I, you know, I enjoy that. We have a great chat. Sure. And sure. then they, I see another patient there a little bit later on. And yeah. then they don't need to, they don't need to do it. Yeah. Because they understand that if you're dealing with those T1, that is less than millimetre in thickness and melanomas, then yeah. that is something that nobody needs to be bothered about. Yeah. So, sorry, they don't need to necessarily get them to come and see us. Sure. So I think if, if the patient is needing a sentinel node biopsy, it needs to see someone who understands melanoma. Yeah. And, you know, if it's a plastic surgeon who's got, is adequately trained and sees a lot of it because not all of them are that's fine that's true um then that's okay otherwise general surgeons or into the melan major melanoma centers yeah but, um having so said your that, cut off there michael sorry to interrupt your cut off would be above t1 for yes, a sentinel lymph node essentially it would be up above t1 yeah. okay if there was a look there's some argument about whether you should do it for 0.8 to point to one millimeter particularly yeah. if there's tumor ulceration but that's not a very large group. And, and I certainly wouldn't do it for older folk, but I yeah. may well strongly consider, consider a sentinel node biopsy in, in younger people, you know, in their 30s, 20s, 40s, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and that, that may be worth a telephone call, but for the majority of cases, it's, it's not necessary. Yeah. The problem, of course, comes if it's in a, in a sensitive position, close sure. to the eye or digit or something other like that, where sure. there's concerns about how you get an adequate margin. Yeah. I think it's also worthwhile remembering that Australia has the world's best set of clinical guidelines. Yes. Um, and if you if you do a Google search on um, Australian guidelines, um, they're, NH, they're the NHMRC endorsed, I think. Well, there's yeah, certainly on the Australian Cancer Council, Council Wiki. Cancer, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Can, yeah. If you do Cancer Wiki melanoma, you go yeah. straight to them. Yeah. We've um, just, you'd be interested to know that in the clinics that I'm... Uh, I'm involved with through through HealthCert. Uh, I chair the clinical advisory board, and we've taken those guidelines and turned them into our own clinical practice guidelines across the clinic. That is absolutely brilliant. When I'll send you a copy. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad. I wish you would actually. We will. No, I will. I'd be very keen for your for your perspective because there's nothing there's nothing that really meets the direct needs of primary care practitioners in that regard. I mean, it's a brilliant resource, but it's not, it's not kind of GP user day-to-day -day friendly. Yeah. Look, can I tell you that the reason they're the best in the world is because everything that's gone into it has had to have a level of evidence um, as yes. ascribed to it. Mm. And it means that you can only make recommendations once the level of evidence is sufficient to justify the recommendation. Sure. sure. So that takes a lot of work. Now yep. it costs that costs a lot of money. And yep. what this idea of the cancer wiki is, as as information comes in, we can actually rewrite the uh, the guidelines. So that yep. uh, you know, John Thompson, who's been overseeing this for quite a few years, yep. has been actually I think really smart yep. in the way he has 
made it so that when there's new guidelines about margins or where there's guidelines about sentinel node biopsy, yeah. they can be updated relatively quickly. Yeah. The problem is we're not we're not printing them anymore, which is probably a good thing anyway. Yeah. But one of the things that did happen in the last version is that there was enough funding around for us to make exactly what you've just done for ah. practitioners and primary practitioners, which right. could then be given out. But I can tell you that nobody thinks that, you know, funding this sort of thing is an absolute priority. And um, yeah. there's an awful lot of work done by people who are just working after hours fixing it. And that's, that's fine. That's, that's, yeah. part of, that's part of the deal. But it would be nice. But I'd be love to have a look at it. We will send them through. Let me ask you, if I may, um, tell us a little bit about uh, your, your perspective on sentinel lymph node biopsy. There is this you know, debate that continues to go on. It confuses doctors and patients. I think we all agree that it gives additional prognostic information, but where, where do you sit on, 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 on that and you know, whether sentinel lymph node excision is really helpful therapeutically, etc.? Okay, so look, I'll declare my bias. I was involved certainly in the last MSLT2 study. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm a great believer in it. Um, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to say it, but look, I, I think the problem with this argument about, about, about sentinel node biopsy, it, it's, 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 it's a, an argument that should not occur. Yeah. So if we went back five years ago, then everybody thought that sentinel node biopsy is what you should be doing for everybody. Yeah. It's becoming a little bit more nuanced. So for instance, we looked at our, all our patients over the age of 85, and what we basically found that there probably wasn't in quite a few cases any value in doing it. So right. we, for instance, now always have a discussion about older people or people with significant comorbidities as to the benefit they're likely to, to, to accrue from... Um, from um, sentinel node biopsy yeah now we are using sentinel node biopsy to drive adjuvant therapy so yeah. these checkpoint inhibitor therapies that is the yeah. immunotherapies and the targeted yeah. therapies yeah we can use them if you have a certain level of sentinel node involvement yeah and clearly that we the original the early data is strongly strongly indicating that it improves dramatic survival dramatically in yeah, this yeah. group of patients. So this is adjuvant therapy. This is not advanced metastatic sure. disease. This is adjuvant sure. therapy. Sure. So the only way you're going to get into onto these therapies is actually a sentinel node biopsy. Yeah. Now, can, so I've told you a little bit about not doing it so much in the elderly patients. Yeah. So the, the group at MIA um, have done a really nice study recently and they've developed a, a calculator that allows you to, to work out the risk of what the sentinel node positivity is yeah. and we're doing that more and more with some of our lesser worrying melanomas right and if we see a figure some less than certainly less than five percent or between five and ten percent chance of it being positive we sort of talk to the patient say listen there's probably not a great advantage into having it done yeah the one nurse if they don't get it done they don't get access to the immunotherapy yeah but the risk of the sentinel node being positive is so small so Understood. that's Understood. so so having said that, yeah. the, the one worry about that is that there is some sort of, look, there's a, there's a, a, a modest signal that if you, are, if you get a recurrence, either yeah. in the regional lymph nodes or elsewhere, yeah. you're, you're likely to get a better outcome with the new therapies we've got if the volume of disease is small. 
Sure. So if you've got, if you're kind of makes sense, right? Yeah, it it sort sort of does. So yeah, and that's 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 got another corollary to it as to how we should be following people up. And you could spend sure. hours talking about that, and that's not yet been resolved. Sure. So what I'm telling you is that we are becoming a little bit more nuanced in how we select patients for sentinel node biopsies. So for yeah. patient melanomas between one and two millimeters, which are quite common. Um, we're looking at the risk of the risk of there being sentinel lymph node involvement and perhaps talking yeah. to patients and yeah. not doing it. And yeah. we're less likely to do it for patients who are sort of elderly or particularly a lot of comorbidities. Right. And I, my strong suspicion is that this is going to keep contracting. Why is it going to keep contracting? Well, there's new technologies coming on. And one of them, for instance, is circulating circulating tumor DNA. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that having a blood test every couple of months may be yeah. where we yeah. need to be. Yeah. Um, you know, th there's going to be other biological markers that, uh, or, uh, that, that then become available that allow us to be a little bit more refined in our treatment. Yeah. You know, I, I think one of the things that, that, that highlights modern oncology, whether you're talking about breast or melanoma, is there's been a de-escalation. You know, we've gone from radical Halstead mastectomy down to wide local excision for many yep. breast cancers. Yeah. And yep. even possibly for DCIS, we're not operating at all. Yeah. So it, it's it's all about horses for courses. You've got to get the right treatment tailored to the patient. Yeah. And I think we're going to see more and more of that over the years. That's fantastic. Look, I'm conscious of our time. Let me ask you one one last question, if I may. What 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 um, if any uh, errors do you most commonly see from from GPs, primary care doctors? It's, you know, it's a tough gig out there yeah. in primary care. You know, everything that walks through the door, uh, none of us are perfect. What is, what's number one on your wish list of, oh, please stop doing X or please start doing Y? I think probably uh, the thing that, that, that I think I, I could make an immediate uh, uh, effect tomorrow yeah. would be to tell people to be very careful about ordering staging. Right. So, you know, we see a patient who comes in who's hyper anxious, who's got a 0.5 millimeter thick melanoma that you know has got a 98% 10 year survival. Yeah. And they've had a PET scan, oh. a CT scan, right. blood tests, and God knows what. Yeah. And that is all wasted money. But we right. also know that 2% of PET scans, or somewhere up to 2% of PET scans, are going to have something on them that then induces you to right. go shove sharp needles into people or right. colonoscopy or do something which is right. not going to do anybody any good. So for certainly for T1 melanomas, there is absolutely no need to do any imaging or blood tests at all. Sure, sure. And we actually don't do very much at all, even for sentinel node positive patients, for, for many of them anyway, certainly with microscopic disease, yeah, yeah. because they're going to do so well and that the scans and the like are just, they're just, they cause a lot of worry and anxiety. Right. I think, you know, you've, it's part of talking to people and saying, look, the scan is, is so, the scan of its chance of it showing anything is so low and the chance of us finding something that you need to have something done about, which is not going to do you any good, is much higher. Yep. We don't want to do it. Yep. That would be my number one. It's not a, really a beef. It's really about people understanding where we stand at the moment with with our with our staff. No, well, that's dead clear, and, and and as you as you rightly implied, there it's a waste of money, and it induces anxiety in the patients and leads to unnecessary interventions. Absolutely. Yeah, Michael, brilliant. Thanks so much for your time. It's been a great pleasure. We may well have to get you back on sometime in the future. Happy to talk. I can talk about lots of things. <laughs> Thank you.
Okay, David, all the best. Bye now. That's the end of it. Thanks so much. No worries. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe so you can get updates whenever we post more. And please share it with others. And for more info, please go to helpsert.com.